No, she's never come to Lady Fitzgerald. I haven't. She's not. Angel, this angel comes to various things. That's what she no, says she was here today, but yeah, I, I haven't seen Angel Michael in a long time. Well, she's just on the left side towards the front, and she was away for a while during COVID days and has, been, has recently come back. Well, Sandy rushing doesn't play golf. Oh, Sunday rushing. Uh, she comes. I've seen her. I think I stopped and asked her. Doesn't ring a bell. Did you I two play golf together? Oh, we, yeah. We, well, well um, we used to have a church tournament. Yeah, really? That's what it was. Yeah, it was we have a church tournament, it was like a scramble format. So that you know, you don't. No one gets frustrated. Uh, Tom would bring his ringer group and win. <laughs> He'd have to force Tom him. who? Harry. Oh, okay. Tom. And they, you know, we we're all just matching up and, right. and uh, but yeah. So anyway, so let's uh, let's begin our study. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, has caused all of these scriptures. Written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life just given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. So you all uh, gathered last week with Father Hayden, and he uh, got you. Doing, not thinking you're going to be justified by faith only, but you're going to be doing works also. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so you you you, you discuss chapter two, so we're chapter three, right? Yeah. Okay. And. James, in general, again, is is an epistle that insists upon, you know, a unity of faith and action, and really uh, calls to task uh, those those compromises of of action and in in, in today's lesson uh, speech that that really don't show that harmony. And it's a good rejoinder. Um, in the New Testament, you know, the, the whole discussion last week, I'm sure Father Hayden you know, touched on this, about St. Paul, who wrote Roman, who wrote, who wrote a lot of all the New Testament, most of the New Testament epistles that, that go to cities. Um, his, his discovery was um, his central message was justification by faith. And we remember that 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 St. Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees had this idea that you be justified because you kept you know the works of the law. And what Paul discovered was revealed to Paul is the law shows you that you can't really justified by your obedience to the law. You're only justified by by faith in Christ, who himself fulfilled the law. But we clearly have um, then as now a kind of um, tension between these the poles of justification by faith, we just put our faith in Jesus and we're saved. And then the other side, well, but what if you what if you you continue to live a horrible life and you're a miserable person? You know, and so um, there's always a tension in that. And and on one end, there's legalism where it's we got to do all these things to be saved. That's an error. Um, on the other end, there's just, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, and what you do doesn't matter, which is an error. 
and the merger of the two is that we're justified by faith, but faith in Jesus brings into our lives the gift of the Spirit, and the Spirit then changes our behavior so that it is consistent with the Word. It's not the um, perfect performance of the commandments, but it, it, it is the change that takes place in us. And as we're growing into Christ-likeness, uh, we have to be careful not to you know, justify, oh, well, I, all you have to do is believe. And there's a lot of that in our culture, in a, you might call it. You know, I mean, historically in our culture, the poles of this have been the evangelical movement and probably you know, old traditional churchiness embedded in sort of the idea of the Roman Catholic Church in the, in the Middle Ages that <clears throat> that taught you you were, you were saved by doing all these things. And, you know, so, so there's always a pendulum there. And James is, is at least answering back against the perversions of St. Paul's doctrine that suggested that what you do didn't really matter. So, chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And it's interesting about teaching because, you know, teaching is, in a, in a uh, sense, it's, it's a uh, spiritual gift. So some people have a gift for teaching, and um, in some ways you might want to encourage people who have teaching gifts to teach. But James approaches it from the other perspective, that teaching carries with it a burden and responsibility. That is, if you're going to speak as the oracle of God, as it were, you're going to be held to a higher standard. And... A lot of our lessons at morning and evening prayer, especially for the ember days, which was yesterday and tomorrow was Saturday, they typically highlight, because they're about ministry, the Old Testament typically highlights the unfaithfulness of the prophets and the priests who weren't faithfully teaching the word of God, but were um, you know, telling people what they wanted to hear and things like that. So it, it, um, it highlights that um, biblically the word, what you say, is significant. This is really going to permeate the teaching of this chapter, that um, idle words, uh, Jesus said in, in um, Gospels, for every idle word that men speak, they'll be held accountable on the day of judgment. And he said, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Just do what you say. Let your, and if we understand this for a minute, it's, it's not hard to understand, although we understand why human beings, fallen human beings, obfuscate and try to make the clear meaning into something vague. But in the beginning, God spoke, and the creation happened. So when God speaks, he, um, his word has intrinsic power. And we, being in the image of God, we have the ability to speak. And what we speak carries the same kind of, of weight um, and so I have to be careful in, 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 in this, the whole chapter here, we'll kind of deal with, with here with teaching, so it's a big deal to get up. And the important thing about a teacher really is not, which is always nice to have, but is that true? Is what was communicated faithful to the word of God? And that's that's so this is why James is saying um, we sh will receive a stricter judgment. So if somebody says, well, I'm, I want to teach, and <clears throat> they start talking, and you kind of go, mm. so this is why the the, the, uh, the teaching. That now, on the other hand, it, it doesn't mean that you know there's a lot of 
teaching roles. He's really talking here about the authoritative teaching office in the church, not parents teaching their children or teachers teaching students. But even there, I mean, the same possibility prevails to, you know, to, to speak what's true. So in, in verse 2, he says, and incidentally, I mean, it, what we said, every idle world, word we spoke, we will be held accountable. Um, you know, sometimes we do speak words that, that we repent, we make a good confession, and we, you know, as we're disowned those, and they're, we're free, you know, so that's, so in other words, repentance and forgiveness sets us free from the burden of the things we've done, but we need to learn from them, and that's why if we, if we had uh, uttered things out of season in error, about that, then we want the grace of forgiveness, but then we also want to practice, okay, what caused me to do that? Let's, let me not do that anymore. And at least our growth should have should be uh, should be evidenced by diminishing uh, prevalence of, of words that are idle and unfruitful. We all stumble in many things. There's acknowledgement on James' part there that, yeah, we're, you know, we're lots of temptations. We're not. He's not counseling perfection, but he's not. He's not counseling. Um, he's understanding we struggle, but then he's also saying, "But let's grow and work on doing the right thing." So. To say that God's grace forgives us is, you know, God forgives us that way is absolutely true. But if we experience grace, it should lead to a corresponding effort to you know, do the new thing. So we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Perfect is this word. Um, Complete. It comes from the word for, that I like, telos, it's a form of that. So um, we remember that uh, when Jesus says, be therefore perfect, it means something more like complete and whole, not um, perfect in the sense that you never make any mistakes. And so here he is pressing the idea of um, If we don't stumble in word, if we can, and it's going to get into sort of being in control of what we say, um, we're, 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 we get to be complete and whole, we bridle the whole body. Now, this suggests that um, what we say has a sort of impact on our whole being. How is that so? Um, do you ever, well, maybe a little self-examination here. Have you ever been in a situation where you said something and later it, it just has a whole impact on ourselves? On the other hand, uh, if, we, if we can learn by uh, grace or practice, we're in a situation and, you know, we're agitated and we're angry or upset or anxious and we want to say something which may be unfortunate, but we've managed not to. We weather the storm of that. It'll, you know, it feels like, some, that, that, like something is... Um, so that's 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 what he's talking about. If you're able, don't don't stumble in word, or if you can be complete, able to bridle the whole body. Because it, the suggestion here is that words are the hardest 
sin, sins of word are the most tempting because they're so easy. Most other sins require a little bit of effort. The sins just to get in that crowd and there we're going and somebody and you know and the so if you can if you can so show some self control to speech, it, it 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 suggests that we probably have a self control that may apply elsewhere. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us. We turn their whole body. That's an interesting metaphor, right? Hold them out. They don't go here. Go here. It's interesting um, if you can think about that bridling uh, in a positive way. Um, that if you've ever For me, it doesn't. <clears throat> it comes out often more thoughtfully, maybe in something I'm writing, but it can equally apply to how we talk to people. Because our net, the net, they, the first thing might be, I'm angry, and I want to, <clears throat> I want to let you know that I'm angry. By a little more reflection, we might realize <clears throat> this anger is about me and not about you. Probably triggered something in me. I get to the point then, then at least if we want to um, confront something, we might be able to, with, with some thoughtfulness, actually frame it in terms of something positive. And when we allow that to come out of our mouths, words that edify, as St. Paul would say, um, it leads us in a direction. The words, kind of the, the the emotions of what we're saying, often follow the the the, the, the expression of it. So we put bits and horses in mouths, they they may obey us. We turn their whole body. Look at the ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, <clears throat> they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature is set on fire by hell. So James, a pretty a pretty um, strident commentary, but simply the temptation to. Um, Gossip and slander. Well, gossip, the, the temptation to gossip is that um, it may actually prove, but it may not be kind or it may not be the way to express the truth in a way that edifies. How might we think of that? How, how would we, how how we might have an example of a truth that we could express in an edifying way, or a truth that we could express in an unedifying way? Let's say that somebody did something wrong to us. We want to verbalize our opinion about this. What might be a wrong way to do it? Yeah. Yeah. He gossiped. He gossiped about him. His brother Raka. No. So Marion's suggesting that um, like if, if somebody one of you had done something that offended me, I could come a Bible study and say, I can't believe you did that. 
in front of everybody. But I could also say, hey, could we talk a little bit afterwards and say, hey, you know, and 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 um, not the other thing about about the 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 um, confrontation there is that it kind of gets to things that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18, where if your brother sins against you, tell him this fault between you and him alone. But the point here is that um, the confrontation of the fault must be with a desire for the other person to understand the wrong and remedy it. Now, but sometimes when I highlight the wrong, it was that I don't really want them to remedy it. I want them to pay. So I, so I, I express it in, in a way that um, that adds to it. I tell people who will then change their attitude towards that person and isolate them so they can, they can know how mad I am. But that's about my anger. It's not about the heart of God who, who whatever er, true error um, person did, God wants them to repent just as he gives us the ability to repent. We're not getting it. I just was praying this morning and I got this idea. You know, and so we see it, and then like you're not getting that. Oh, I also didn't get that here, and I'm still waiting for that. Like as I'm still waiting for that, and this goes off somewhere. Give God that debt. You stop waiting and trying to demand it from them and giving everyone else. We're trying to give our parents. And God's like, I am your big parent. Yeah. The the other um, the other thing about that, uh, which is right, I mean, Cheryl's talking about um, we want to be forgiven, receive from God what the forgiveness He's promised, which He has made conditional on us forgiving the other. Um, But it it seems like there's also with this, that uh, we we often um, have a participation in the disorder of interactions with people, even if we are on balance the um, on balance the innocent party by a factor of seventy thirty or sixty forty. Um, just like marriage counseling. I, this. Okay. What, I don't know what the percentages are. I'm not there. may not be 50-50. It's probably not 95-5. There's some kind of thing. And 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 so, um, you know, as Cheryl points out, I think when, when we get angry at somebody, we bring a wound that's woundable. But we allow you to say something that not angry, you know. And, and so, but we have to take... Um, so we have to be aware of our role in this and, and, and all the this so, so that um, because and here, here's I think getting back to sort of psychologically why this is so important is quite apart just from for, for, for I, I forgive you but um, if I don't and, and therefore I, I'm, I'm harboring this anger and your very existence aggravates me. Um, and every time you, you come in the room, I can't handle it. Um, I'm allowing you to determine my whole spiritual, psychological, and emotional state. So I, in a way, because it, it's paradoxical that people say, well, I don't want to forgive and let him off the hook. Well, the idea that, that Cheryl raised about we give it to God, we're not really letting him off the book because Jesus said, you know, if people are going to be held accountable, 
in that is, I think Father Hayden was right in church today when he says, you know, things, truth comes out over time. And even in this life, we, people aren't, no one's going to get away with anything. But, but what um, our forgiving is lets me off. I'm no longer having to, to, to uh, play the role of, of revenge, which I'm, I'm not very just at. And that's sort of the, the, um, the contrast between what it's, it, it highlights what Jesus brought into the world that is, con- that is different and in contrast with what's common in every culture almost invariably, which is in every culture there'll be some kind of feuding factions. You did something to me, I, I bear a grudge, and so my relatives or descendants then do something to you. And then and, and a lot of the times it shifts with the balance of power. When I have the power to do something, I oppress you, then there's revolution, and now you can do that to me. And is always just a, a back and forth, and it just shows it just shows the um, the stuckness of fallen human nature, because someone's always wounded, always demanding satisfaction. And it's part of the problem of um, even culturally. I I, I wade in this with, with great trepidation, but but the idea that even past wrongs we can somehow make them right. Certainly, if somebody has been deeply wounded and there's a way to acknowledge that. But um, the fact is that all of human history is somebody conquering and oppressing someone else. And it's like, even when you talk about, like, well, um, and listen, we, for example, even even in our um, own history, we have some things that we didn't do very well. I don't think we did, you know, the Indian thing is that we, I don't think we did, that wasn't the greatest thing, but you can't find any culture where that's not how they got there. It doesn't justify it, but this is what it is. And and and, and what Christ does to that is, rather than coming in to say, I'm going to make you pay, he comes in to break the cycle. Comes in to, to, to take upon himself our sin, to take it on the chin, himself on the cross, and then to say, Father, forgive them for they know what they do, so that when we enter in the person of Christ in our own lives and we're offended, and and we, um, there's, there, and this, this is the thing that's important to understand, that, that it hurts. It hurts when people do things to us that are wrong. It, or it triggers all kinds of historical stuff. That whole wound is something we have to deal with in our prayer. We're not denying that it hurt. What we're getting away from is blaming you for it. My hurt is my experience. It's my participation in the human wound caused by sin. And, and so... I want to, how, how can I uh, get too deep in the weeds here? We're making Bishop, it, yes. Can I, you know, I'm, I'm remembering in the Old Testament where God does have people make restitution, and there is that whole idea like in AA where you make amends with people. So I think there is times where uh, I see what you're talking about is so huge. How do you even We have to we have to let those things go, but God does have some places where restitution is is given, and sometimes us actually just yeah. And and I was also thinking um, that thinking of Psalm thirty nine, where where God. Buddy, we didn't hear anything you said for a while. We had feedback, so I'm going to turn the speaker off, and you can say it again now. Okay. All right. Um, what I, I was referring to is in the Old Testament, God does have areas where you do make restitution. You know, you if you steal something, you you know you have to uh, make restitution to that person. And I think sometimes in certain situations that can be healing. You know, like if we hurt someone or if we take something from someone, uh, that act of forgiveness and reconciliation and restitution can be a healing thing. And 
in in AA they even have that of making amends with with people. So um, I'm not saying you know some some things are so huge that you it's, it would be impossible to do that. But but I think on some sometimes there is a time to make restitution and it can be healing. Um, anyways, I just is remembering that from the Old Testament. Um. Yes, I, I, yeah, I, I, I wasn't, um, there, there's, uh, especially in this interpersonal dynamic where, where we hurt somebody, we should make efforts to make amends. And I actually think it's something that, um, uh, especially with property crimes in the Old Testament, uh, there was this idea of restoring um, Charles Colson, who was a prison reform guy. He was in you know, politics, and then he had a fall and a conversion. And but he talked a lot about that. Our prisons are full of people who 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 are guilty of economic crimes. They're paying for by being incarcerated, whereas in biblical sense, they they they, they make it up by paying back. That's really what should happen. Um, so yes, I think I think the personal restitution thing is is very significant, and um, I, I think that. Um, so the the, the thing I I, I I would really highlight is that in the realm of moral theology, that is, how should you handle this thing? This wrong was done. What do we do about it? There's always a situational component to it, and and we can't we're never freed from making. What, what do I do in this situation? Sometimes you might say, just given the dynamics of it, I have to let it go. So, for example, I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let something go and forgive, but the person who did it still doesn't. We're not in relationship. They're they're angry. So there's a limited amount of things I can do. I don't think, you know, to, to, to make that right. You know, on the other hand, um, and, and, and then, so there's also the, the dynamic of if I'm gonna do something to make it right, um, it has to be without a hook. Sometimes we do something for somebody and we want them to realize how gracious we were to, to make it up and tell us how great we were. So when you do that kind of thing, and I would say even even the act of um, somebody, and this actually is, is significant, is um, when, when you do something wrong and somebody's hurt, you should apologize. I am sorry. You should not demand, please forgive me. That's for them. When you apologize, this was wrong. Um, then you're you're owning your role, in it, and you give them the freedom uh, to uh, to respond to it. And I, I, there's something to that um, uh, that that you know again is a nuanced moral conversation. I, I, there may be some situations where the other might be fitting, but. I guess the point of, um, you know, please, please, please forgive me, is, is quasi-manipulative. I'm bringing an emotional hook asking you to do something. Doesn't the thief on the cross ask Jesus? Um, he asked you to remember him. But, again, I'm, I'm not stating your, I'm stating something that, that definitely applies to interpersonal dynamics. That if I say, I'm sorry, that happened. I give you the freedom to um, forgive or not forgive, but I'm now free. I've owned what I've done. If I say I want you to do something in response to what I've done, I'm putting a hook in you. And a lot of times the giving we do, the good things we do, have a subtle hook. And so when we're trying to make restitution or so when you want, if you want to say something of a, of a penitential nature to someone, or even if you want to say something where you're going to confront the truth, make sure that when you do it, you don't need anything in response. And if you say it, and they're going to tell you to get lost, 
and you still would want to say it. But a lot of times people say, well, I want to tell them, I want to give them a piece of my mind on that. You know, it's, not, it's wrong for me not to, to confront that, right? Well, what do you want from it? Well, you want them to acknowledge it. So if you... If you go and um, say what you want to say and they don't, are you okay with that? Or you need to write another letter to see if they can really convince them. So that's the thing. So your own wholeness is always recognizing your role in something, acknowledging it, and confessing it, and then letting it go. Letting other people's role in the thing, let them take care of that. And as long as we need something from them, there's always going to be an, uh, an unhealthy dynamic. In it. And so there's, I'll, I'll go any farther with that. So uh, we were, we were uh, set on fire by hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> for, for every kind of beast and bird, a reptile, creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. No man can tame the time. It is unruly, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have made in the similitude of God. So, out of the same mouth receive blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Now, this seems to speak of directly of the church. So let's just picture ourselves gathering this community for worship. Praise God from our room, all blessings flow. You know, come in. And then we come out of the church and come out here. And I, I've, I've definitely witnessed that. I've, I've been. I mean, I will say, like, I'm, I've never been free from implication of guilt in this, in this, in this. Uh, but also that, you know, I've been to churches where we just celebrated the holy mysteries, we're all one. And I came out and just put a white and load on me on someone in church who's doing this, that, and the other thing. And it suggests that maybe we haven't experience the healing that the liturgy is, is, is giving to us. And this, um, the demand that we love each other as Christ has loved us is implicit in this command to forgive as we've been forgiven. That, um, and I don't think we take it seriously enough. Um, in, in, in the church, largely because, I, well, it might, be, it might be in the Western culture that we're very individualistic, so we can really make my faith my personal faith and baptize my grudges and anger as things that God understands. He doesn't, because he's not holding grudges. Every single week we come, our stuff, on same stuff. Oh, forgive me and receive. And now we go out. Wow. But, you know, that, that just shows, that's that parable of the um, of the unforgiving servant, which is precisely a image of worship and its aftermath. The servant who owes 10,000 talents have patience, I'll pay thee all. And he doesn't say, yeah, okay, take more time. He says, I'll just write it off. And he leaves the church. That's, that's going to happen at the altar. There you are again. All the stuff. Good to go. And we go out, and all of a sudden, we're just, if we're looking at everyone around us who are angry at we just haven't gotten what just happened. Then we're forgiven. Are their sins forgiven? Does God look at them the same way? And are we an agent of that grace? And so, um, and that would be the thing, not only just this sort of act of letting it go, but also that we become actual ambassadors 
and the power of the gospel in in our lives towards others is when others offend us greatly. We take it and forgive. Um, there was a um, and and in that sense we we. Um, the words of St. Paul, fulfill in our body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He doesn't mean that there's something insufficient about the cross. He means that the body of Christ, sharing in the cross and the hope of resurrection, is meant to take on some of that, to endure some of the suffering that comes from the human condition. There was something about this, actually, uh, Cheryl, mine, 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 it just stuck with me about, because that word absorb, because I still remember that night we had our class with you and Kevin, and you talked about absorbing not sounding good, because you could have to absorb something the way a sponge. Kevin Ryan had this image that, well, so if you absorb the pain, you could, like, be a sponge and all the, and you're all, you know, you just take on the whole ugliness. But there's another way you absorb, and uh, remember Kevin gives the image of like a mattress. You throw a baseball at a mattress, it will go, it will come back. So absorbing that we're taking, in other words, there's a certain amount of, of pain we're going to just take on and process. And that's part of our... Um, Ministry as Christ-like people, after which we say, okay, I forgive you. That's exactly what our Lord did in the cross. Took on the whole pain of it. I said, it's okay. Derivatively, um, again, this is a nuanced moral discussion. It means, it doesn't mean I shouldn't say, hey, look, this is, you did this, and this was it. Because that's a prophetic duty. If I have something I'm supposed to say to somebody, to communicate the truth to them, but it must be in love. Is it because I want them to be reconciled and to know forgiveness, or is it because I want them, you know, I'm trying to gain a thing? So, um, with it, we bless God, we have to curse others. I'm very conscious of the mouth that gives praise to God and and then receives the grace of God is... is um, Then required to go out and not curse other people, but but to always desire their good because we're supposed to be like God, who always desires everyone's good. Verse eleven: Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Point is, your mouth is giving indication of what's at the root of your being. And if at the root of your being, of our being, is Christ, it should bear the fruit of speech that is that shows that that's the tree it's coming from. And I would say, rather than simply the mere sort of, you're, you're either bad or, or um, completely good, what happens to us, there are parts of us that, that maybe bear some bitterness that we have to deal with and they'll manifest itself. And, so we, and, and, and that's in the spiritual life. We see that coming out, we're convicted about our speech. You might want to say, what's that about? What was I angry about? What did that person do that that that, um, that stirs up all that in me? Bishop, it kind of speaks to the environment that that plant or tree is in. We have to be conscious of how are we taking care of our own tree that we do yeah. really with us, yeah, rooting things out.
Who is wise? Verse 13. Standing among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Um, we're getting back to some things, the wisdom um, James had said earlier on, we, we, we count it all joy when we encounter trials, but if, um, if any of us lacks wisdom, we can ask God. And um, And he talks about in an earlier place, he said, um, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So let him show by his good conduct his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And and I, I do think that that in the in the spiritual life that there is a there's this Contrast within our being between what we can call reactivity and what we can call thoughtfulness. And reactivity is something we have in common with sort of the animal kingdom. It's the fight or flight impulse. It's um, and so when we're um, in in spaces where um, think there's a lot of emotion cir- circulating. We get caught up in it, and we react, say or do something unfortunate, or we wish we hadn't said or done. So, um, wisdom that we're that we're gaining is to um, learn to, to to take the other chapter. The bridling of the tongue is when we're in that kind of heightened emotionally reactive state. Practice saying and doing nothing. Be aware that we're being, that something is is setting us off, triggering us, provoking us. And, and uh, you know, breathing can be helpful, maybe just, but, but that's, wisdom is okay. I, it, it's not like you're gonna always feel at peace. You can feel a lot of turmoil, but don't act from that space. Then when we get some distance from that tension, emotionality, and return to our prayer greater thoughtfulness, we can decide, oh, what do I want, what do I want to say about it? And if, if you're like me, it would be like, I'm going to write a letter. I write it, wait a day. It's like, well, maybe not. I may want to say just that. And wait another day, it's like, maybe I just should let it go. Now, there's, and there's, so wisdom, I'm saying, is something that we gain the longer we sit with it. And the, um, Foolishness, or the is, is comes more out of the the reactive emotionality. So the more we allow ourselves to be governed by thoughtfulness, which requires that we forego short-term angry satisfaction. And so he goes on to say here, but if if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So this, this, this is not from above, and I do think that reactive emotionality, which, which is triggered by our own wounds, we're reactive because... Um, we're carrying bitterness about something in the past that we haven't let go of. And therefore, you say something to me. And it, it, it and, and that's, and I just, and so um, that's, that's from below, reactive. Um, but, and, and where it exists, everyone's, everyone's acting out of that space. And you're going to get exactly what he says when when that governs the end. You're going to get confusion, envy, self-seeking, every evil thing. Because I'm bitter at you. You're bitter at me. 
We both want the recognition. There's a scarce amount of it, so we're going to fight for it. That's that's the devil zero sum game, a competition for. Um, but the wisdom from above, verse 17, and this is something he had brought out in um, first chapter, where where uh, he says. Uh, where he contrasted sin, he said, uh, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Desire is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown brings forth death. That's chapter 1, verse uh, 13. But then he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So we're born again from above. And this conquers that um, earthly, sensual, demonic, visceral, and that's where sin comes in that space, too. Sin, where God's not tempting us, because if we saw things the way God sees them, none of it would be tempting. It's our own desire augmented by, you know, spiritual forces that tempt us. And so in all these things... um, this, this contrast between weathering the short-term storm, intense emotionality, and just saying, no, don't do it, don't say it, don't act on it. Then waiting until uh, we can we return to uh, our prayer and act out of thoughtfulness. This is Jesus in the wilderness where devil is, is, is in, in a heightened state of need, presenting all these things that Jesus just says no to. And then when he's done, we notice in the temptation of the wilderness uh, that angels come and minister to him. So the, the short-term, irresistible urge to do something will always pass. So <clears throat> wisdom increasingly lets us know that it will pass. And we, re- we realize, oh, I'm in a heightened emotional state. I better watch out. But if we don't have that wisdom, we just, if I don't do this, the world's going to come to an end. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. And this kind of, I think this does pertain a little bit to what, what Connie was saying about the environment we're in. That, like, if we're planted... In, you know, in, in this organic metaphor, we have the life of Christ in us. There's a prayerfulness about our life that this is the, the importance of this daily rootedness in prayer and the Word of God is that we come back to that and go, oh yeah, that's where that's where our own bitterness is confronted. Oh yeah, that, that's not. And <clears throat> so we habituate to that encounter with God through His Word and habituate to being in conversation and community with people who support that higher wisdom, then we're going to take that on. But if we are always putting ourselves in environments where the worst part of us is triggered, um, we might not grow in quite the same way, which is why we have to be aware of how we spend our time, what we do. And this is this is actually a big thing in our culture because of the media that um, a lot of people choose to turn on media and spend their day getting angry at a television set or getting angry at a computer. But in, and that's what's, what, what's being chosen there is an environment of anxiety because we must remember that um, almost all forms of, of, of what they call news, I deny that it's giving you any news, all forms they call news are designed to increase viewership. And the way the increased viewership is to heighten anxiety, <clears throat> heighten the crisis mentality, and let you know that unless you stay glued forever and get really angry, the world's going to fall apart. The the silliness of it is that 
I don't know that any problem has ever been solved, and I don't care what side of the argument you're on, because, and of course, on TV, there's only two sides, or, you know, get you side. I've never seen, I've never seen anything furthered by any of those. So my point is not that you shouldn't, you know, I, it just, it's just that where, if, if you enter into that anxious milieu of the world, the world, we live in a highly, highly, highly anxious culture. If you decide to put yourself in anxiety all the time, you're going to become more reactive to things, people, you're going to catastrophize a lot more. But if you instead <clears throat> spend more time stillness and some silence, reflecting on the word of God in your prayer, and understanding that we don't have any idea what God is doing culture or in the world. But we trust that it's heading towards the completion he has for it. That's how we get, well, that's what we get when we stay in our prayer. Um, you know, the world looks chaotic. <clears throat> Things are going, you know, hell in handbasket, all that kind of thing. It looked like that on Good Friday, too. But the end result was resurrection and new creation. So if we're going to live in wisdom, non-reactively, we have to be in environments that cultivate that. And I think one of the biggest problems I've seen is people, Christians, who put themselves all their day in reactive environments and then try to love. They're angry. You've just spent all day being angry at them. Assuming the very worst about it. And the other thing about it is, you know, that, that this polarization too is is so non-personal. Like you see, you see the sort of the left-right stuff. Well, if you have a neighbor who's actually on the other side of something from you, and you actually get to know them, you realize they're not really quite from the pit of hell the way it's. You know, there are first there's points of view formed by life experience, and you may disagree with it, and you may think they've come to a wrong conclusion, but you discover it's not really that you can't even talk to them or look at them, which is what the anxiety does. And and I think the other big problem with this is apropos of what we're talking about, where um, we bless God, we curse men, that if we're going to be ambassadors for Christ, we have to learn to love our enemy. And that's not something that is at all portrayed in media culture. That Christ died for all. So I just, you know, reflect on that a little bit in our lives. The wisdom of love is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. That's really significant, verse 17. Can you, can you let your argument go for some greater good? Can you get on? What, how many hills are you going to die on? What hill is worth dying on? In the early church, it was worth dying to not say Jesus is Lord, or Caesar is Lord, but to maintain the Jesus I see people now who probably wouldn't die for that, but would, would, would kill for their uh, their political view. Are you willing to yield? I, that's a good ask. What what hill are, is worth dying? Question to ask in church, in marriage. Sometimes you might go, I'd rather have it this way. Do I want to blow it all up over my little personal preference here? Let's sing your hymn. Let's let's do it your way. It doesn't matter. That's maturity. I can I can rejoice. Oh, you maybe you'll be happy, and and that that would would I get some? That's that's a kind. No, I don't say I'm always there, but I'm just saying that is what it looks like. Willing to yield. Full of mercy. Those are merciful. Those receive mercy. And good fruits, doing good towards others, without partiality, loving everyone equally, not just preferring your friends who can do good for you and those who can help you, but also just doing good to all. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
this, there's a lot of echoes in this of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, they'll obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Is this what, what we reflect out of our prayer and relationship with God? This uh, also reminds me of uh, Psalm 39. It's almost, I wonder if he was reading that where God says, don't be like a beast. You need to put a bit and bridle on, but, you know, I'm going to show you the way that you should go. So, you know, depend on me. Don't think me put a bridle on you, so to speak. Yeah. The whole image of of uh, the descent into beastliness and the ascent into Christ-likeness is a central biblical image. Um, and the more we become reactive and instinctual, the more beastly we become. The more we enter into the reality of Christ, the more we become, at, apropos of Christmas, genuinely human. You, you pick this up, for example, in uh, Daniel chapter 7, where uh, Daniel sees the various rulers portrayed by beasts. But then he sees one like the Son of Man, which we could understand to be the truly human one who rules in truth and justice and love and equity. To become like him, we become human and less beastly. All right. That'll be it for today. We'll do chapter four next week. May the Lord bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace. Y'all good to see y'all? Honey, Elizabeth, Mimi, Daryl. Hi, Mimi.